Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and turn to John chapter 20. John 20. That's where we're going to begin, and that's where we're going to end this morning. And while you're turning there, think about this question. Why did we gather today? Yes, of course, because it's Easter, but why today as opposed to a Tuesday or a Friday? Why Sunday? The answer is because of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection happened on the first day of the week. And the resurrection of Jesus has changed all of human history and the history of God's people. It's an important and central event. Let's read the account we have in John chapter 20, and then I will introduce what we're going to talk about this morning. John chapter 20, and I'll read verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Nobody seemed to expect this. There's confusion. The women seem to think Jesus' body has been taken. We're told that John, that's the disciple, he refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved in that account. He's just, he's the one writing it. But the account tells us that he saw and believed, but it also says that as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So was the resurrection unforeseen? Was this a change of plans? a new innovation or idea that God kind of came up with on the fly in order to solve a problem that he hadn't seen coming? Not at all. In fact, the resurrection was in the works from the beginning. And this morning, since we have been working through a series on God's law, I'd like us to look at how the resurrection was present even in the law. And by law, we're talking specifically this morning about the first five books of the Bible, what's sometimes called the Torah. Is the resurrection hinted at there? Well, it is. And so there's a lot of examples to choose from, but I've chosen four examples this morning that I would like to share with you to show how resurrection was foreshadowed in the law. And then after I go through those four, in the second half of the message, we'll go back and just say, how do each of those four point us to Jesus? The first example I want you to see of where the idea of resurrection is present in the Old Testament law is the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, we read, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, He gave them a task. He told them to take dominion, to fill the earth and subdue it. And this was a very physical task. 
It involved their physical bodies in the physical world. It had to do with dirt and plants and animals and each other. But along with that task came a requirement. They were to obey God. God put two trees in the center of the garden. One tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as long as they didn't eat from that tree, they would live. But if they chose disobedience and ate from that tree, God said in that day, they would surely die. The other tree was the tree of life. And when Adam and Eve sinned, God removed them from the garden so that they could no longer eat from the tree of life, so that they couldn't live forever in that sinful condition. And he put cherubim, angelic creatures, at the entrance to the garden, we are told, to guard the way to the tree of life. So death would follow sin, but the very existence of the tree of life held out the possibility that someday death might be defeated by life. When Adam and Eve sinned, God removed them from the garden, away from the tree of life, away from the presence of God. They would be separated from God, exiled. So there are very real physical consequences to their sin. Physical separation from God's presence and the tree of life there in the garden. And physical death began that day and would one day finally take them. But present in this as well is the possibility of resurrection. Death is now a certainty but the existence of the tree of life holds out the possibility of resurrection hope. Now, that all happens in the very beginning of the Bible, the very first couple of chapters. If you go to the very end, though, the last chapter of the Bible, you find the other bookend, so to speak. The tree of life appears there, too. Revelation 22, verse 2, tells us that in the New Jerusalem, on either side of the river of life that flows through the city, grows the tree of life, and its leaves bring healing. So all of those who belong in the New Jerusalem, in other words, all of those who are God's people, who by faith in Christ have been declared righteous in God's sight, all of those people have access to the tree of life. Adam and Eve had been removed from God's presence, from the Garden of Eden, but now God's people have been returned to his presence in the New Jerusalem. And having the tree of life, they will live forever in his presence. From death to life, the resurrection of God's people. And that resurrection hope is there in seed form in the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. The second example I want you to see of where the idea of resurrection is present in the Old Testament law is the story of the flood. Genesis 6:17 tells us that because the wickedness of man on the earth had grown so great, God said, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. 
The story of the flood, of course, is the story of God judging the world through the waters of death. He's starting over as the flood waters receded, so to speak. And Noah and his family come through the flood safely on the ark, along with enough land animals to restart and replenish life on earth. And we need to realize how the Bible uses the picture of these deep waters. It's a picture of chaos and death over and over in scripture. You see it in the flood, of course, the the deep waters cause death. It's God's judgment. But also like at the Red Sea, when the waters crash down on Pharaoh and they kill him and his army. Or the story of Jonah, where he faces death in the belly of the fish in the stormy sea. Or on the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus and his disciples are out there and the disciples think they're going to die in the stormy waters until Jesus calms the sea. Well, the picture of the new heavens and earth tells us that there will be no more sea. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be water. I think we all like a good lake or river or waterfall, even the ocean when it's not a hurricane or a tsunami. But the wild, chaotic waters of death will be a thing of the past. This imagery that the Bible uses of these deep waters representing death is also present right at the very beginning of the story. When God created the world, we're told that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, the deep. And then, what did he do? He brought land and life out of the deep water. Right from the beginning, God brings life out of death. What happens in the flood, then, kind of mirrors the creation. It's a recreation. God brought judgment and death because of sin, and then he brought life out of that judgment. Deliverance from death and judgment. That's a picture of resurrection. Death and judgment and deliverance and life that comes out of it. Now, maybe that sounds like a bit of a stretch to you. Does the flood really picture resurrection? Did God really intend that Noah and his family and the animals coming through the flood waters would be a picture for us of resurrection? Well, listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, 20 and 21. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Noah and his family were brought safely through the judgment waters of the flood. Baptism, Peter says, corresponds to this event. Why? Because in baptism, we have the picture of someone being brought safely out of the waters of judgment and death, being raised to new life. Peter uses a shorthand way of saying this when he says, baptism now saves you. It's not the baptism itself that saves you, but what Peter says it corresponds to, being brought to new life out of the waters of judgment and death. When you feel the condemnation of the death that you deserve because of your sin, Peter is saying you can appeal to God for a clear conscience based on what? Based on the resurrection of Jesus. 
The resurrection of Jesus is the proof, the evidence, that God has accepted Jesus' sacrifice in your place, so you have truly been raised to new life. You have escaped the floodwaters of judgment, like Noah on the ark. Jesus' resurrection is evidence that you too will finally escape death. You will be raised. So the picture of resurrection was present there in the flood as Noah's family escapes judgment and death. And God brings the recreation of the world after the flood judgment. The third example I want to give you this morning of where the idea of resurrection is present in the Old Testament law is how God gives new life to barren wombs. The patriarchs of Israel, that's a a name that we give to refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, each of them had wives that dealt with barrenness. Abraham and Sarah didn't have their promised son, Isaac, until Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, Rebekah, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And we're told in Genesis 30, verse 1, that Rachel cries out to her husband, Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Rachel's statement there is more than just simply a desire for a child. She recognizes that if she doesn't have a child, the family line will die. God had given promises to them, but if there's no one to pass the promises on to, then the story's over. In each case, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, God gives life. He gives a child, a son. These barren wombs were lifeless, dead. What chance did Sarah have to bear a child for the first time at age 90? Humanly speaking, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God can bring life out of death. God can bring resurrection. In Matthew 22, there's a story of Jesus' encounter with a religious group known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees are kind of a liberal group as far as theology goes. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Pentateuch, as scripture. Now, they come to Jesus and they have a question to ask him. And it's a trick question. They're trying to trip him up. And so they're using a question about resurrection, which they don't believe in, to try to trick Jesus. And so here's what they ask. They say, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now just pause there for a second. That was the standard practice in those days because you wanted to have the family line continue on. So if, uh, if a husband passes away before his wife has any children, then the brother steps in to provide children for that family line. That's, we don't do that anymore today, but in those days that was kind of standard practice to keep family lines going. So that's the, the practice they're referring to. They continue. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? 
So they think they've stumped Jesus with this question. And their purpose is to ridicule the idea of resurrection and Jesus for teaching it. But their question uses the scenario of a barren womb. Okay? And now how does Jesus answer this? Well, his answer comes in two parts. First, he answers their specific question. And he says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus says, this, this scenario that you're giving me is irrelevant to resurrection because marriage is a temporary earthly relation. But then Jesus adds a second part to his answer. He wants to say something about resurrection. He wants to show the Sadducees why their belief that there is no resurrection is inconsistent with the scripture. And since the Sadducees only accept the first five books of the Bible, Jesus is going to bring his answer from that part of scripture. He's going to use those books to prove what he wants to say about resurrection. And so Jesus says this. He says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. See, the trick question of the Sadducees had to do with barren wombs. So Jesus uses the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of whom had barren wives, to make his point. And his point is that belief in resurrection is not unreasonable. Just look at what God did in the lives of the patriarchs. He brought life out of death. Is resurrection possible? Of course it is, Jesus says. The stories of the patriarchs teach us so. So resurrection, the very idea of it, was present in the law, in the very stories of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel. God brings life out of death. That's what he does. The fourth and final example I want you to see this morning of where the idea of resurrection is present in the Old Testament law is the story of Abraham and Isaac. God told Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, Abraham obeyed what God said, <clears throat> but before Isaac was killed... God provided a substitute, a ram caught in a nearby bush. Now, what's important for us to see is this. When Abraham set out with Isaac to go up the mountain with the intention of sacrificing him, here's what he said to his servant. Abraham says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham says that he and the boy will return. How would Abraham have the confidence that Isaac would return with him if he was going up the mountain to sacrifice him, to kill him on the altar? The answer is resurrection. Listen very carefully to how the author of Hebrews explains this. This is Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, 
through Isaac shall your offspring be named, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, Abraham had already seen the miracle of God bringing life out of death. God gave Isaac to Abraham and Sarah when they were way too old to have children. Life out of a barren womb. So Abraham reasoned from this that God has the power of resurrection to bring life out of death. If God had promised to give him descendants through Isaac, then God must be planning to bring Isaac back to life. Abraham found the idea of resurrection believable because he'd already seen it. God had brought life out of death for him already. So the law bears witness to the idea of resurrection. We've just seen four examples of how it does that this morning. The tree of life, the flood, the barren wombs, and the story of Abraham and Isaac, the only son. Now in the years after Jesus' resurrection, the apostle Paul was able to point back to the Old Testament law as being witness to resurrection. When Paul appeared before Felix in Acts 24, the Jews are trying to get rid of him. They accuse Paul of being a troublemaker and starting riots through his teaching. And in his defense, as Paul stands before Felix, Paul denied those charges and he said this. He said, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul's belief in a future resurrection was based on the law and the prophets. Evidence like what we've seen this morning gave Paul confidence that there would be a day when he and all others would be raised to life again. Now, We've looked at those four stories from the Old Testament that all indicate the reality of resurrection. Before we finish this morning, I'd like you to see how each of those stories point us to Jesus. So first, the tree of life. And there's two things I want to point out here this morning. First, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he talked to them about how no one can be justified before God by means of obeying the law. We're all lawbreakers, so we can never please God by law keeping. Instead, we gain righteous standing only by faith in Jesus. And Paul explains to them, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the curse of the law is death. How can we escape the law penalty of death? And the answer is by faith in Christ who redeemed us from the curse by taking that curse on himself. And he did that by hanging on a tree. So the tree of death, Jesus' cross, becomes for us a tree of life. And second, remember 
that Adam and Eve were removed from the place of the tree of life because of their sin. But in the New Jerusalem, God's people have returned to where the tree of life is. How is that possible? Well, Jesus is the one who accomplishes this. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, God tore the veil open in the temple. The veil marked off the presence of God. So Jesus was opening the way back to God, back to his presence. And that's where life is. Jesus is the only mediator, the Bible tells us, between God and man. So Jesus is the one who brings us back to God's presence, back to the tree of life. Secondly, the flood story points us to Jesus as well. We saw earlier how Peter compares going through the waters of baptism to going through the waters of the flood. And Paul does something similar when he writes to the church in Rome. This is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. He connects it even more specifically to the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, being buried under the waters of baptism, Paul says, is a picture of being buried in death like Jesus. And then being raised up from the waters is like Jesus being raised to new life again. So baptism, which remember Peter connects to the flood, is according to Paul a picture that identifies you with Jesus' death and resurrection. The resurrection isn't just something that happened to Jesus that we remember once a year on Easter. It's a reality that marks your life as a Christian. You are identified with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Just as he has been raised, so too you have been raised to new life spiritually. And there will be a day when you will be raised like him physically. Third, the barren womb. These stories remind us that God's the one who has the power of life. And that power is exercised in our lives through the work of Jesus. How is it that we're brought to spiritual life? How do we become children of God? It's through the work of Christ. How are we released from the power of death? It's Jesus who accomplishes it. How is spiritual life brought out of the barren womb of sinful humanity? The Bible tells us that it's Jesus who brings many sons to glory. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews explains it. And this is a little bit longer, so just follow the logic of what he's saying here. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, we believers are the children that God has given to Jesus. And it is for us that he's destroyed the one who had the power of death. How? By going through death himself and defeating it. That's resurrection. And the effect is that we who were under the fear of death have now been delivered from it. And finally, that fourth story, the story of the only son, Abraham and his only son, Isaac. Abraham received Isaac back, figuratively speaking, from the dead. He had faith that God would raise Isaac in order to keep his promises. Now, Isaac was Abraham's only son in terms of his wife, Sarah, through whom the promise was given. God, too, has an only son, Jesus. John 3.16 is a very well-known verse, but listen to it again with the story of Abraham and Isaac in the background. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What's the same between the story of Abraham and Isaac and God the Father and Jesus is that this is the only son of the Father. Just like Isaac was Abraham's only son by his wife Sarah, Jesus is the only son of his father. But what's different about the story is that at the last minute, God provided a substitute for Isaac. A ram took his place on the altar. But in the case of Jesus, Jesus himself was the substitute. The ram that God provided to take Isaac's place was ultimately a picture of Jesus. Jesus dies as the final sacrifice in the place of his people. The resurrection that Abraham believed in came through in the resurrection of Jesus. And because Jesus was raised, we will be too. In Romans 8, Paul says this. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God was willing to give his only son for us, then we have no reason to doubt his love, his promises, his generosity. And if God raised Jesus from the dead, then that same love and generosity will lead him to keep his promise of resurrection for us too. When we turn to the stories in the Gospels of Jesus' resurrection, we're not reading something unforeseen. We're not seeing a brand new innovation or a new idea that God came up with at that point in history. Instead, we're seeing something that Scripture has pointed to all along. Even the law, the first five books of the Bible, point us to resurrection. One of my favorite parts of the resurrection story in the way that John tells it, is two particular details that he gives. And he's the only one that includes these details. In John chapter 20, after Peter and John had left the empty tomb, Mary Magdalene remained behind. 
she saw two angels guarding the place where Jesus had lain, and they asked her why she was weeping, and she explained she didn't know where they had taken Jesus' body. And then she turned around and saw Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. He asked her why she was weeping, and then John says this. This is verse 15. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She thought he was the gardener. I don't think that's a throwaway detail. I think that's there on purpose. He was right at home in the garden. Why? What do gardeners do? They bring life out of the ground. Just like Adam was supposed to do in the Garden of Eden, now Jesus will take on the task of dominion, of making life flourish. And what about the other detail, those two angels guarding the place where Jesus had lain? They remind me of two angels in another garden, the two cherubim that God placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Now, these two Guard the place where life has defeated death, just like the tree of life, where life has broken into this world, where life, your eternal life, my eternal life, where that life begins, its source. I think that with this scene, John points us right back to the garden. Resurrection has been the answer all along. Right from the beginning, the hints were there. This would be the way that God would restore life. This would be how God would bring man back to the tree of life, back into his presence. It would happen through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is risen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the story of the resurrection that is so much more than a story. It's a true story. And like Paul says, if in this life, only we have hope, then we are of all people most miserable, most to be pitied. But the reality is we don't have hope just for this life. We have hope for the future because Jesus truly has been raised. This was part of your plan all along, hinted at from the very first pages of scripture. I pray that you would again this morning Cement these truths in our minds and hearts. Help us to wonder once again at the mastery, this beautiful plan that you have pulled together and the power that you have over death. We naturally are under the fear of death because we're sinners. We deserve death. But you have created a way to life. And that way is Jesus Christ. Many of us in this room have faith in Jesus. We've trusted him for salvation. But there very well may be some who haven't. And I pray that you would work on their hearts and their minds to help them understand this message of the good news about Jesus. The good news that our sins can be dealt with. We don't have to live under their weight, under the fear of death. We can have hope for the future because of what Jesus has done for his people on the cross, turning the tree of death into a tree of life. 
Lord, I pray that you would glorify yourself by bringing many sons to glory through what Jesus has done. And we honor you and we glorify you. We praise you. We worship you this morning because of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.